0: Hello and welcome to Inside Retail, the podcast brought to you by Edited, the world's leader in retail intelligence. In this podcast series, we explore both the opportunities and the challenges that the retail industry is facing with myself, Grace Hill, Edited's Director of Retail Strategy. Handbags and small leather goods occupy a special place in the retail market. A recent report by The Business of Fashion, which Edited was thrilled to provide data insight on, has underlined this. More than frivolity or arm candy, however, this is a true hero category that drives the majority of sales at some of the world's largest fashion houses. According to their recent company reports, 50% of Prada's sales and as high as 72% of Bottega Veneta's sales are attributed to handbag and small leather good purchases. However, in the face of intensifying competition and shifting consumer behaviors, brands need to adjust their strategies in order to win in this crucial category. That's why today we're joined by Diana Lee, the Director of Research and Analysis at Business of Fashion, who is instrumental in delivering the new era of designer bags report from BOF Insights. We've discussed how the report came about and what the key takeaways are for retailers and brands who currently occupy the luxury space, as well as the challenger brands that aspire to get there. So let's get into it. Diana, hello. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. We've prepared some little icebreakers just to get us going. It's Edited's own version of Vogue's 73 Questions. So let's begin.
1: Crossbody or shoulder? Definitely crossbody. I prefer hands free. Yeah, me too. Favorite handbag you own? Oh, that's a tough one. I'd say right now it's probably the Loewe puzzle bag where I've got it in a color block and I think it's really fun. What's your favorite report that you've created? Okay, this is a challenging one because at BF Insights, we're a pretty new team, but we've already issued six reports and Every one of them is special in their own little way, but I'd say probably my favorite just because it was the first ever. It was the launch of the team. It was, you know, really a milestone effort in terms of launching this new division and having an actual output. So it would be our first report, which is on the future of fashion resale. What's the most challenging issue facing our industry right now? Okay, this one is definitely going to be controversial, but also not surprising. It's it's the overconsumption. So the fact that most of the business models are very much oriented around pushing more product. And because of social media and different trends, those are coming about faster than ever. And at the same time, you've got issues with sustainability where it's not really tenable for us to continue in this way. So we have not cracked that puzzle as of yet. Couldn't agree more. And coffee or tea? Definitely tea. I am not a coffee drinker. And TikTok or Instagram? I love both,
0: but in terms of where
1: I'm at more today, I'd say it's
0: TikTok. Well, now we know a little bit more about you. Could you start off by telling us a bit about your background in the industry, what your role entails as Director of Research
1: and Analysis at Business of Fashion? Thank you so much, Grace. I'm really happy to be here. Benjamin Schneider and I are the co-authors of the report on designer handbags. And so I'm really delighted to be representing the team at BOF Insights today. So the business of fashion itself is a media company focused very specifically on the fashion industry. And the research arm is the newest division and we consider ourselves to be the think tank and the data unit. So my team is responsible for actually coming up with the content roadmap to say, what are the most topical issues that people in the industry need to learn more about, giving them the deep dives and then actually pushing out the reports. And so we have a regular cadence, perhaps every two to three months, there is a new report that comes out. And our most recent one is the reason and why we were gathered here today, which is to talk about designer handbags.
0: Amazing. And tell us a little bit more about how you got into this role. What's your background?
1: Sure. So I started off as a consultant. And then after graduating from business school, which is very much sort of a kind of standard path for consultants, I decided that I wanted to work in industry. And I was particularly interested about the business side of creative industry. So I've dabbled in hospitality. Then I went into fashion for the first time by working for Yves de Porte. And then I went into theater. And now I'm in media, but focused on fashion. So it's coming a little bit full circle. And so that's been really fun to both have worked in fashion and now to be on the periphery and to actually be covering what is happening from the industry, but from a more objective perspective.
0: Obviously, this is covered extensively within your report, but why are designer bags a hero category for so many
1: luxury brands? You can really think about this in two ways, both from a consumer perspective as well as from a commercial perspective. So, I'll tackle it from the consumer perspective first. So, Handbags are definitely a very special object. And that's not just because they're inherently functional, but they also have this unique symbolic value. So if you think about fashion, one of the main ways in which people convey their personality and their self-expression is through handbags. And handbags are, you know, quite simple. They're, they're not complicated. So if regardless of your physique, regardless of what style you have and the amount of knowledge that you have about fashion, anybody can wear a bag and all of a sudden they can pertain to a specific consumer class. Like they can belong to a specific tribe or where they aspire to belong. So this is a really easy way for consumers to be able to access the fashion lexicon. And then from a commercial perspective, this is really important for brands. So the handbags tend to be the most visible symbol for mm-hmm. a fashion house. A classic flat bag from Chanel or a Birkin for Hermes, those are very visible symbols of a fashion house. And so they're also very important from a sales revenue perspective. So when our team at BOF Sites actually looked into the public um, statement and annual reports of different brands, we found that um, over 70% of the annual revenues from brands like Kate Spade, Coach, Saint Laurent, and Bottega Veneta actually come from handbags and small leather goods. So this is substantial. It's outsized impact when it comes to the financials. And so- you know, this is clearly very important to to these fashion houses in terms of both asserting their brand identity and their ethos as well as contributing to the bottom line. And you can also see this as being very important for brand turnarounds. So the most notable example is mm-hmm. 2017, when the then Burberry CEO announced a turnaround plan that really focused on handbags. And that's because handbags can really attract a higher-end luxury mm-hmm. consumer. There's a lower returns rate, so you can have higher margins. And also handbags tend to have a higher price tag associated with it. So it can be very powerful. On all these different fronts,
0: it's so true as well, isn't it? Because it's similar, almost the overconsumption piece that we were talking about earlier, right? The longevity of those pieces and like the frequency in which consumers wear them—it's much greater. And I feel like there is just not that kind of seasonal aspect to those products necessarily in the same way that there may be for the latest runway show and the collections from an apparel perspective.
1: You're exactly right. So there's much less stigma mm. with wearing the yes. same handbag day in, day out. Yeah. But it's not the same if you wear the same shirt or if you wear the same yeah. dress. And, and that's partially because of social media. And we have a sense of being very self-conscious about repeating outfits. Yeah. But handbags have largely been able to escape this particular stigma. And how have you seen the competitive landscape evolve over time? So how are brands differentiating themselves? In in this category? Right. I love that question. And a way to think about it is very visual. So imagine these quadrants and there's these two axes. So you've got your X-axis, which runs horizontally, and that is going from more accessible pricing to less accessible. So you're moving towards ultimate luxury and absolute luxury. Then your vertical axis, so your Y-axis, is going to be on the spectrum of being very classic in style to being very fashion forward. And what's exciting about the landscape today is that there has been a lot more activity and there have been these challenges brands or contemporary brands yeah. that have really cropped up more towards the accessible side of the pricing spectrum, but they're really spanning both the classic styles as well as fashion forwardness. And this is because the definition of luxury has actually expanded. So for luxury today, we have streetwear brands like Telfar or Off-White, and they have very luxurious elements because mm-hmm. there's scarcity, there's hype, there's demand. Mm-hmm. And you also have brands that are much more classic in style like Manu Atelier or Mansur Gavriel, but they're much more accessible in pricing because is they have this proposition that we're going to mm-hmm. offer you high quality leather, but at affordable prices. Mm-hmm. So that is really where you see these new contemporary brands cropping up. And this is good for the consumer because there's a lot more choice to have that expansion, the definition of luxury. Obviously, this is a challenge, but also an opportunity for the heritage brands that are out there because for them, it's really about finding that point of differentiation and being able to cut through the noise in order to continue to appeal to their target audience. Yeah.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it, in terms of differentiation? Like, is that color? Is that shape? Is that
1: price point? Like, how do they differentiate themselves? the most important thing for a heritage brand to keep in mind is about having the right mix of consumers. So that's both in terms of maintaining your loyalists as well as attracting new customers. And so you need that in order to kind of bring fresh energy and new blood into the brand and to continue to have that excitement and to get people to be interested in your brand and what you're pushing out. So that product differentiation is really important. So usually that is about finding the balance between your core, which is having your best selling styles and handbags and mixing that up on occasion with novelty. So that is a way that you can also attract new consumers with the novelty but also appeal to your loyalists because it convinces them to come back because you've got something new to offer them and they can peruse your selection, and they can add to their collection. What are you seeing as the most desirable brands and styles from your research? Okay, so I feel like that's a question that will be better uh, suited for edited to answer because of your expertise, but I will tackle this question from a high-level perspective, which is in the course of our research at Bof Insights, what we noticed is that there's really been this bifurcation in styles. And so on one hand, you have items and handbags that are very well-suited for social media. So Mm. they're very bright, they're bold, colorful, they have really unique shapes and silhouettes, and they really pop when someone is scrolling on their phones. So that is what you've got on one hand. On the other hand, you've got the classic styles that continue to reign. So you've got your classic flatback, from Chanel, you've got, uh, you know, your Hermes Birkins. And so there's a tendency for people to say, if we don't want something that is really going to pop on social media, then I want to be able to save and to really be able to splurge on something Mm -hmm. that will be very classic and timeless and be seen as an investment piece. So there really is that bifurcation in the styles that we're seeing. And, And I think it's a reflection of the society that we now live in. Definitely. I like when I think of those popping
0: styles that are unique in silhouette. I think of like the Jodie Bottega, which you've seen everyone like at wedding season, you know, they've got it as part of their, in a fun colour, complementing their, their outfits. And one thing that really fascinates me, and maybe this is from my background at Edited, is around pricing architecture and how you see that differing from more of those heritage luxury brands to those kind of new contemporary challenger brands, new players that we've seen in on the market.
1: Certainly. So for the pricing architecture, it is what you would expect in the sense that the contemporary brands tend to sit at the lower end of the pricing spectrum because that really is their core proposition. It's about offering this appropriate ratio of price to quality and delivering value for money. So they tend to have a tighter pricing cluster because they're sitting very specifically at the lower end. On the other hand, the heritage brands like Louis Vuitton and Gucci, when we did our pricing analysis, we found that they tended to span a much larger spectrum. So I'll give specific examples. So for Stella McCartney, We did an analysis looking at the UK website, and we found that every single handbag sold for less than 1,500 pounds, and 80% of the products fell between 500 pounds to 1,000 pounds. So that's an example of a tight pricing cluster. On the other hand, Louis Vuitton, their pricing ranged from under 1,000 pounds to greater than 3,000 pounds, and the distribution by the price ranges were very even. And so you can think about this, again, because of that challenge we talked about earlier with heritage brands, where they have to both maintain their existing customer base, but continue to attract younger, newer demographics. And oftentimes that means using pricing as a lever and attracting people by having items that can be a little bit lower priced. So you can think about the popularity of mini bags, where Mm -hmm. that has now created a whole new segment that sits very comfortably at a lower end of the range, but in no way affects the brand positioning of a Louis Vuitton or a Gucci or whoever that that brand may be.
0: Inflation is such a hot topic in our industry right now. How are you guys seeing pricing shift
1: over time as well within these product categories. So this is really where we have to credit Edited because one of the data points that your company provided was actually about looking at the pricing of women's designer bags in the US over a period of time. And so Mm. what we discovered is that there's actually been a 27% increase since 2019 when we compare the pricing. So there's been a noticeable shift. And this has been because of, you know, clearly there was pent up demand after Mm -hmm. the pandemic. The luxury goods segment definitely rebounded very quickly. Designer bags um, certainly fell within that category as well in terms of people really flocking to this in order to kind of, you know, try to make up for all of the lost time during the pandemic when things were shut down. We conducted a survey of high net worth individuals. And what we discovered is that those individuals actually did not see those price increases as being very significant. So a little bit of background about this panel. So these were individuals that had a median investable asset value of $2 million. So definitely very wealthy individuals. So when we surveyed and we asked whether they agreed with the statement of whether they had noticed significant price increases for handbags, only 40% of them agreed with that assessment, which was a little bit surprising, but it means that there's potentially more room to push when it comes to increasing prices for handbags. And when we further surveyed this population and we asked this panel just what they thought in terms of whether the price increases were justified, actually half of them thought that the price increases were justified because of the cost inflation and everything from supply to labor. That is fascinating. And I think as well,
0: the concept of the fact that these are hero categories for these brands, which typically means they're best selling products. And the fact that they have the opportunity to further increase the pricing of these products is, I guess, exciting for them from a commercial perspective. <laughs> so obviously I read in your report that over 50% of all engaged consumers start by browsing online. How have you guys seen the digital expansion impacting the handbags and accessory space.
1: Okay, so this is an exciting question because the first thing that I want to say about the internet and social media is that they have been enormous levelers for brands. It used to be the case that you needed significant capital, resources, Mm -hmm. connections to be able to get a brand off the ground, and that's no longer the case. It used to be the case that you needed to have to have these wholesale connections so that you could actually get your product out there. But because of social media, Mm -hmm. these brands now have direct access to people who are going to be ardent fans. And so this is why you've really seen the creation of contemporary bag brands like Mansur Gabriel or mm-hmm. Senrev or Pauline. So these young brands are all very adept at using social media in order to be able to create and build communities. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing we already talked a little bit about, which is just about how the internet and social media has really changed what we see online. So mm-hmm. there has just been a lot more bold and kind of colorful shapes and silhouettes. And, and I think that is very exciting. And the third thing is something that we've actually talked about in the newsroom at the Business of Fashion, which is is this phrase around long live the it bag, the it bag is dead. And so what I mean by that is that back in the day before social media and um, in the U.S., there was really this monoculture. So if you thought about it, everybody ate the same cereals, we all watched the same Saturday morning cartoons, mm-hmm. and that's no longer the case because of social media. So with social media, there's been this enormous splintering and this fragmentation into subgroups, and each of those subgroups have a different way in how they want to express themselves through fashion. So this is definitely very true for apparel, but it's also true for handbags, where we see a lot of micro-trends flourish, and then just as suddenly they vanish. So on the topic of it bags there's a question of whether they still exist anymore and if they do then it's probably not in the same way that they did back in the 90s or early 2000s it's become very busy it's fragmented but at the same time it could be very exciting for consumers so how are you seeing consumer
0: value shifting over time and impacting that demand today so
1: the first consumer value that is really important to think about is practicality. And we've defined that in three different ways. So one is functionality, which is the ease of use for a particular bag. The second trait is durability, which is around just whether you can toss the bag around and it's you're not going to worry that it's going to get damaged. The third is versatility, meaning that you can use the bag in more ways than one, or you can take it out in different kinds of occasions and it'll still be appropriate. What we found to be universal in the markets that we surveyed, so we concentrated on the U.S. China, because those are the two predominant markets for uh, designer handbags, we found that practicality really trumped. So those three traits consistently appeared as the most important attributes for consumers. And the way that we're seeing practicality translate in the real world is that mm-hmm. there's this popularity of crossbodies, there's been this resurgence of belt bags, and yeah. the whole point is to be able to go hands-free, whether you're walking in the park or running around in the city, and being able to have you know have that kind of sense and peace of mind that you can go about your day. And we're also seeing this in terms of gender neutrality, where if a bag is practical and can be a little bit more utilitarian, so it doesn't delineate as as cleanly into kind of like a woman's bag versus a man's bag. And that is definitely something that we're seeing continue to pick up in in popularity and being able to appeal to people regardless of their gender one other thing that I wanted to mention is around sustainability because mm-hmm. it is an important characteristic and it's going to become increasingly important especially mm-hmm. when you look at younger demographics like Gen Z that's a population that values sustainability more than any generations come before so the reality is that while it's important it's probably not going to be the big differentiator for a bag today it's probably going to be the mm-hmm. brand story and the actual style of the bag that will still be the most compelling points and sustain- sustainability will be the cherry on top so a good example is if you think about Telfar with their shopping bags, those are made out of vegan leather. But most people are buying those bags because they want to be seen as part of this creative class. They want to be showing that they're breaking down fashion barriers and that they're championing minority representation. And, And it's not because the bags themselves are vegan leather. But I think it is very much we're on the cusp of a potential revolution because there's a lot more interest in being able to innovate in this field. And how are you seeing kind of regional differences play out as well and shift over time? Sure. So, our report really concentrated on the U.S. and China because those are the two most important markets for designer handbags. And they constitute over half of the market right now. And right now, the U.S. and China are basically neck to neck. But uh, the expectation is that over time, the China market is actually going to pull ahead. And so, it's going to constitute a Mm -hmm. third of the global market for designer handbags by 2027. So, that is something that is expected to change. And and so in terms of the regional differences between those two markets, one of the big interesting differences is that there is actually... um a difference when it comes to the budget. So for the U.S., 80% of consumers who are looking to buy a bag or have purchased a bag in the last year actually stated that less than $1,000 is what they would comfortably spend on a designer handbag. And that number actually fell to 60% for Chinese consumers, which is fascinating because there's obviously a difference in the purchasing power of China. But it indicates that Chinese consumers are actually more willing to splurge on designer handbags. And you also see the difference in terms of the brands that actually surface. So if you ask U.S. consumers about their favorite bag brands, you see Coach and a lot of Michael Kors. And then when you ask Chinese consumers the same questions, the top two most mentioned brands are Chanel and Louis Vuitton. So again, there's a tendency for the China market to go more towards absolute luxury and for the U.S. market to be more towards the accessible part of the pricing spectrum.
0: And I guess when it comes to lifestyles and functionality demands, you were talking about practicality earlier. Do you see differences there as well in
1: terms of how that's shifting? Okay, so this one is interesting because if I just said that practicality is the main consideration for the US and China, that's a little bit of a simplification. It's obviously going to be more nuanced. And so a really interesting division is when we break down our results by generation. And what we found is that for Gen Z in both the US and China markets, practicality is not always a in your top three. So for example, for Gen Z, they did also care about versatility and functionality. Mm -hmm. But the third most important factor for Gen Z in the US was actually identity for bags that they use on a daily basis for China and for the Gen Z consumers there, actually identity came out to be the second most important factor. So that self-expression piece is particularly important for the younger demographics versus the older generations. And so you only see that when you actually break it out by those age ranges.
0: How does that translate in terms of general
1: population versus those high net worth individuals? Sure. So the difference between those different surveys that we did is that on one hand, we worked on general population surveys of the US and China. So those are demo balanced, meaning that they're representative of the entirety of those countries of people who are 18 and above. For the high net worth individuals, that's not meant to be demo balanced. That's just a selection of high net worth individuals who have that median investable assets of $2 million. And so they're very different populations. And we wanted to be able to compare the two to see what kind of differences we would see. And there weren't some, I mean, there there weren't always surprises, right? Like you would expect that there would be differences in things like budget or preferred brands. And so in general, there, there actually were a lot of similarities as well in terms of for regular use everybody preferred practicality when it came to having something that was functional and durable or, or versatile and special occasion bags is actually where you see a bigger difference so mm-hmm. what was interesting is that for the general population they still tended to care about those practical considerations when shopping for a special occasion bag which we're defining as a clutch or an evening bag that you might use mm-hmm. for a wedding or a date so they still cared cared about those characteristics because there's an implication that they're going to use those special occasion bags more than once. They're going to be able to use it for the next special occasion. However, for the height net worth individuals, when we surveyed them and asked about their preferred attributes for special occasion bags, the practicality actually fell away. And what they cared most about was actually brand. And so you can think about this as the height net worth individuals actually have the luxury to say, okay, for a special occasion bag, here's how I'm asserting my personality. Here's the brand affiliation. Here's a certain aspect of showiness that I want to display. So that was an area where we did see a big difference between the two populations. What I
0: find fascinating about this category is obviously the growth rates are greater now than they were even pre-pandemic. So what are the long-term opportunities for this category? We know it's continuing to grow and at fast pace for you know
1: both established brands and also challenger brands. Mm-hmm. So this is a really exciting field and it's going to continue to grow. So when we did our research and we looked at statistics from Euromonitor, we mm-hmm. saw that currently the market is $72 billion and it's going to grow to $100 billion over the next five years. And for us at BOF Insights, what we're really excited about are the emergence of three nascent channels. So those are live streaming, resale, and rental. So I'll tackle mm-hmm. each one of those. So for live streaming, this is still very early days in the U.S. when it to comes to Mm. shopping via live streaming. But it is par for the course in China. And one of the staggering statistics that we uncovered over the course of our research for this report is that 80% of the engaged consumers in China had actually shopped a designer bag via live streaming before. And a a really prominent example of a collaboration that a brand had with an influencer is when Bottega Veneta partnered Mm -hmm. with this key opinion leader who is known as like a KOL in China and him, his colloquial name is the Lipstick King. So there was this collaboration where there were 200 plus mini pouches that were being sold via live streaming. And this allotment sold out in 10 seconds. So there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of excitement and people want to be able to pursue the same things that Mm -hmm. this influencer has and they want to emulate the style and to kind of, you know, support the influencer as well. So that is very standard in China as of now, but it's still really early days in the U.S. So obviously some of the big tech companies like Amazon are putting a lot of funding into investing in their live streaming capabilities, but there's also been setbacks. And some of the notable ones include TikTok, where they've rolled back some of their plans in terms of expanding into the U.S. and Europe. But overall, I'm actually quite bullish about live streaming shopping in the U.S. because Mm -hmm. if you look at the tradition, there's already the home shopping network. There's already QVC. (laughs) Those are institutions. And it's just a question of, well, why has that not translated to social media at scale? So my belief is that give it time and there will be greater consumer adoption.
0: And could just for our listeners benefit, could you even just describe a little bit more about like the format and the setup of a live streaming experience? Like, is it like the lipstick king demonstrating the functionality of the product, their opinion of it? I, I kind of obviously am more familiar with, you know, the typical uh, home shopping uh,
1: experiences. Yeah, So you can definitely think about it as just there's this influencer who is testing out this item. So if it's a handbag, they're probably mm-hmm. showing you the drop. They can probably show you what's in side, and, you know, how many pockets there are, yeah. you know, how it feels and describing it. And all at the while, there's going to be a lots of different kind of chat interactions and engagement from the audience. Sure. So it becomes a very busy screen. But part of that is actually what draws a lot of people in because there's just so much interaction. And it's a great way to be able to feel closer to an influencer and to be able to really get an opinion from someone that you trust. And so this is mm-hmm. why live stream shopping has become so popular in, in certain markets. But um, You know, it'll take some time for it to really be adopted at scale in the U.S. and elsewhere. What are the
0: opportunities within the resale and rental market? I know from your report, like 60 to 80 percent of consumers are interested in this
1: opportunity. That's exactly it. And so, rental and resale are the two other channels that we really wanted to highlight as being two very big potential areas for handbags to continue developing on. So we can see them as almost being two sides of a coin, because it goes back to the conversation we had earlier about how there are trendier bags that are very well suited mm-hmm. for Instagram and TikTok and and whatnot. And so that might be an area in which a consumer may be more inclined to rent because the bags are, you know, they look great for now, but they're so of the moment that you don't know if they've got the staying power, in which case you would be more inclined to rent them rather than to purchase. And then on your other hand, you've got the classic pieces where people will continue to try to save up for, and then they'll splurge on. And you'll see that because we've already talked a little bit about how the prices in the primary market continue to increase. So there will be some segment of consumers that will be pushed out by those price increases. So they'll revert to the secondhand market. But there's also the people who can see those prices increasing, and they realize, that they can recoup some or all of the cost that they had expended on a bag that they've already gotten full use out of. So that's kind of how you can see rental and resale playing off of one another. And so right now it's still early days, especially for rental, but mm-hmm. in combination and in concert, it could actually be really beneficial for consumers because they can satisfy very different propositions.
0: And I think it nicely ties back to the kind of overconsumption and circularity, and obviously not having to constantly have a new product, but being able able to kind of contribute and be a a citizen to the industry in that sense. So what are
1: also the pricing opportunities long term? you know, have we hit that ceiling? Do you think? In our survey results, we were quite surprised to see that the panel of high net worth individuals, you know, only 40% had agreed that the price increases were actually significant. So that could mean that there's still this willingness to pay that can continue to be extracted. But of course, a brand has to walk a very fine line because you don't want to anger a lot of your loyal customers at the same time. And the other way kind of to think about this is that, The data point about how price increases for women's designer bags in the U.S. had increased by 27% since 2019. Mm -hmm. So that price is now around $2,500. So that is already 2.5X times the normal amount that the average general population consumer in the U.S. is willing to spend. But it's still within the budget for about 60% of the high net worth individuals. So clearly brands have to think about who it is that they're targeting because if they continue to increase prices, they're not really going to be able to appeal to To the general population and that may be very well okay for that luxury brand and they just have to focus on who is actually their target audience.
0: Are there any other like long-term opportunities that maybe I've not like mentioned or brought forward that you think would be
1: interesting for those brands to consider? Well, China is definitely going to be a very interesting market. We mm-hmm. talked already about how the U.S. and China are uh, very similar right now in terms of their positioning in the global market for sales of designer bags. But China over time is going to outstrip the U.S. And you can think about it because the population in China is, you know, over four times bigger than the yeah. U.S. So the market itself, just from the sheer size, it's an attractive opportunity. And it's also a country that is continuing continuing. continuing to move from a more agrarian economy to one that is, uh, you know, much more middle class and much more urban and developed. And so you have this burgeoning middle class. And even though this year has been very tough for China because of continued COVID restrictions and lockdowns, Mm -hmm. long term, the expectation is that just because of the sheer size of the China economy and how it's this kind of continuation of the development of an emerging country, there will be a lot more opportunity when it comes to sales for uh, any brand, not to mention, you know, any hand background. That wraps up the conversation.
0: But we have one final question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what is the one thing that you would love our listeners to take away from this episode? Okay.
1: Well, I think handbags are a pretty relatable topic. I'd say that most of us have actually browsed or shopped or used a bag before. So I really hope that this is something that people can see that there is a business behind this as well. It's not just a frivolous thing. Like it is a massive industry and fashion overall. And handbags are a very important aspect of that. And there's a lot more to uncover, way more than I could possibly cover in this conversation. I feel like I could wax on. But for anybody that is interested in learning more, uh, they can always go to our our website at shop.businessoffashion.com to be able to peruse our full report. Well, Diana, thank
0: you so much for joining us for such a fascinating conversation. I feel like that was jam-packed with such incredible insight. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to our latest episode of Edited Inside Retail. If you'd like to read the Business of Fashion report for yourself, head to our show notes to find out more there. I'm Grace Hill, and I'll see you next time. Goodbye.